We're back. We're back. We're on a new topic this time. Um, last, the past few episodes, we've been talking about climate change, environmental justice, um, but we're sort of shifting focus a little bit, and we're going to be talking about nukes. Yeah, so thanks uh, for voting in our poll that we put out on Twitter. Um, we're going to kind of talk about a lot of the backgrounds of nuclear technology, nuclear weapons, proliferation of nuclear weapons, and then we're going to go through some of the theories today. So there's a lot to dig into with nuclear issues. There's nuclear proliferation, nuclear energy, nuclear technology. In terms of like the broader scheme of things, nuclear weapons are a relatively recent weapon. Um, nuclear energy also is fairly, you know, relatively new, but the problems that it brings up are not new. Mm -hmm. So nuclear weapons have really only been used twice um, in the history of nuclear weapons at the end of World War II when the United States dropped two atomic bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, Japan. Um, the United States said they did this to end World War II, but there were a bunch of other sort of hidden agendas in using nuclear mm -hmm. weapons like trying to stop the spread of communism from Russia to Japan and also um, just to show the Soviet Union that the United States was here to play in terms of being a major world power. Of course, they've also been dropped in terms of testing a lot um, in the Pacific, also across the U.S., you know, all of these, as we've talked about, non-white geographies in the world, um, they have been tested, um, which has a whole bunch of other consequences that we'll talk about a bit later. <laughs> but in terms of actually firing weapons at one another, um, that's only been done twice. But, I mean, I know we talked a lot about this in my, like, high school history classes, college history classes, um, that the detonation of these bombs is really, really bad. Um, and it's, it's killed hundreds of thousands of people. Nuclear accidents have killed so many people. I mean, just thinking about Chernobyl, um, the people that died immediately in the wake of the explosion, but also, you know, the cancer that was caused because of exposure to nuclear material and whatnot. Um, so these weapons and this technology is really dangerous, right? But why do people want them? Why are they still around if they're so dangerous? Um, around the time that nuclear weapons came to be and there was more discussion of like using them as political weapons too, um, there were a couple ideas ideas out there um, about mutually assured destruction or MAD and deterrence theory. Uh, mutually assured destruction is this idea that if anyone uses nuclear weapons, then so will other countries, which would result in the demise of all countries involved and probably some that weren't directly involved. Um, so there's no point attacking with nuclear weapons because then everyone would just end up worse off. And deterrence theory is kind of a precursor to MAD because it holds that nuclear weapons are intended to deter states from attacking with their nuclear weapons um, because there's a promise of retaliation, which in turn would assure everyone's mutually assured destruction. Yeah, so of course there's all this political power of nuclear weapons, but there's also a lot of interest in nuclear technology as an energy alternative. Um, because it's much more efficient than coal, natural gas, and other non-renewable resources. 
but there's also a couple problems. It's extremely expensive to build these facilities. They're very complicated to use. Um, and of course the largest issue is nuclear waste. So how do we deal with nuclear waste? How do we deal with accidents at nuclear plants? Um, there is some innovation in terms of waste disposal, but again, the same thing with these issues of weapons causing very slow violence on communities that live near them, the waste causes slow violence as well. Um, which is this idea that it just isn't a quick, you know, you're being firebombed, millions of people die. It's a very slow type of violence that takes a very long time to have negative impacts, which makes it difficult to make policy against. Totally. And, you know, countries all over the world, even ones without nuclear weapons, they've, they have recognized these problems. There have been all kinds of treaties to deal with nuclear weapons, um, non-proliferation treaties, um, which basically just means that countries ag agree not to spread nuclear weapons to other countries, not to build more nuclear weapons. There's all kinds of treaties. The INF, START, SALT, all of these are acronyms. Um, but this issue has been definitely discussed within the international community. Yeah, but this also brings about a really big problem um, because there's, of course, the issue of weapons proliferation, especially at the dissolution of the USSR. Um, but there's also the right of people to have nuclear technology if they want it. So how do you decide, you know, is it, you know, from a very paternalistic standpoint, let's say, if the US, Russia, any of the other nuclear states, how do you how do you square that with the right of people to have uh, renewable resources and technology? Mm -hmm. And how do you, especially, you know, the United States, no, 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 you don't get <laughs> nuclear weapons, but yes, we will keep mm -hmm. ours. So they're kind of like you said, that was perfect, like very paternalistic um, mindset around nuclear weapons, which feeds into, you know, colonialism and imperialism and whatnot. Um, and there are... There are some solutions for dealing with that. Um, they have not been enacted. So one is the concept of an intergovernmental nuclear fuel bank, which would be established in a country like Kazakhstan, who has said that they would love to do this. Um, essentially, a bank where countries with nuclear plants would um, give some of their fuel for countries who said, I don't have the money, I don't have the necessary uh, infrastructure to build this, but I'm interested in not using my coal plant as much. Um, but Again, because of the power dynamics, countries don't want to give up their nuclear fuel. They're worried that that will result in proliferation of the technology and weapons. Mm -hmm. um, there's all, so many more problems with this. Just the inherent hypocrisy involved with this international nuclear regime. States claiming that, oh, we need nuclear weapons for safety. Um, and you know These weapons take so much money um, an investment to modernize nuclear weapons and make sure they're up to date, up to code, whatever. But we're never going to use these nuclear weapons, right? Like there's this nuclear taboo out there. Um, I believe Nina Tannenwald was the one that proposed this theory. But it's taboo to use nuclear weapons now, right? You think anyone that does it is just evil, soulless monster. And then with the idea of mutually assured destruction, like it would just result in... Um, the destruction of whatever country um, struck first. So what's the point of it? So you see this underlying hypocrisy in the global nuclear regime anyway. I mean, in a broader sense, just the immorality of using them in general. Oh, totally. You know? It's just, you know, when countries go to war, it's 
a country versus country, but it's not uh, 100% of the populace versus the whole other population. And when you drop one of those bombs, there's no way that you could just target a nuclear facility because that's not what that bomb is used for. Absolutely not. You think about um, Nagasaki and Hiroshima Mm -hmm. just obliterated. And then you think, you know, when the American public found out how many people died in Japan, there were cheers. And it's like, are you kidding me? That's horrible. And so I think we've definitely come a lot further on the morality front, but still that the fact that these are in existence just showcases kind of where where morals do stand. Yeah, I mean, even I've been looking a lot at public opinion polls over the past 20 years, and one of the things that always comes up is, is it, is it justified for the United States to use nuclear weapons? And of course, like a huge portion of the population says, no, it's never justified, please don't do that. But there's always 20 to 30% who mm-hmm. say like, yes, like that's reasonable. That also kind of blows my mind just in terms of another really big problem with having nukes around is the lack of democratic oversight Mm -hmm. over nukes you know the president is in control at least in the united states is solely in control of nuclear weapons and there's no like there's no civilian oversight there's no congressional oversight and it's just the lack of democratic oversight is terrible um just for how destructive these weapons can be. You know, you think of how the presidential powers have generally been expanded, Mm -hmm. um, especially since 9-11 and the Patriot Act and all of these things, and Congress has had, and the American public have had huge problems with just how much presidential powers have expanded, but then nuclear weapons are not really discussed at this, and it's that is just mind-blowing to me. It is. Um, I think also it gets me thinking about the culture of nuclear weapons in the U.S. military. Um, just as, you know, they have to have it, it has to be part of their systems, all of these things. And it's just such an interesting development because could you, you know, realistically speaking, could you really take that away? Like what, how would that impact how the military organized itself? How would our economy change if we took this huge, you know, thing that we spend money on and pour taxes and dollars into out of that? Mm-hmm. That's another, totally, I mean, warmongers make so much money um, from U.S. government contracts, and not just with nuclear weapons, with other weapons that private private companies provide to the United States military. But um, yeah, you know, it would, it would cause a significant impact to the economy, absolutely, but where, could, where else could we put that money? You know, Very education, true. healthcare. I don't know, things that impact people's lives, not nuclear (laughs) weapons. Who knows? So we can talk about some of the theories now. Yeah. How, you know, what what things do they bring to light? Because, of course, in traditional international relations, which you probably read, you know, is some of the stuff that we've just talked about. Issues of um, nuclear proliferation, Mm -hmm. terrorism, quote-unquote rogue states. Rogue states. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm-hmm. And just, you know... Part of me sees this side. It's like, well, now that we have nuclear weapons, how irrational would it be to just give them up in terms of, oh, it would make us less secure? That's kind of what a lot of people cite as, well, we have them. But yeah, critical theories offer a ton of insight on 
the nuclear issue, various nuclear issues. And so we'll go ahead and dig into those. Yeah. So the first theory we'll touch on is Marxist theory. Um, so Marxist theory, as we've talked about, kind of brings attention to the structural dynamics that um, talk about modes of production. So the construction of nuclear weapons, the construction of nuclear technology, um, and kind of maybe asks the question, how are social relations changed through nuclear modes of production? What does that create? So if you think on the really local level, how does, let's say the US government says, we're gonna build a nuclear facility in the proximity of this town. How does that change the way that those people see the world? How are they interacting with each other? But also on a broader scale, once a country becomes a nuclear power, how does that change the way that they interact with other countries? Totally. And I think the local politics of this is really missed a lot because I think nukes are often discussed as this issue of quote unquote high politics. Mm -hmm. But, um, you know, there are communities that are impacted by this and their whole um, like local economy revolves around nuclear nuclear issues. I think, I mean, you think about Los Alamos, New Mexico, which is where nuclear weapons were first developed in the United States. And a lot of the local economy there still revolves around that laboratory. And so if you just took, got rid of nuclear weapons, yeah, that would, I mean, that would significantly impact a lot of communities. So there's talk about like just transitions and um, communities that are reliant on coal face similar issues and whatnot. Um, I think what's also interesting is it's not just an issue of now. Um, so there's also a lot of other, not just others, but there's one other country, South Africa, the only country that's given up nuclear weapons, um, but they still have nuclear technology and they're still dealing with a lot of this waste that came from that, that came from these things. Um, and during the apartheid regime, this waste was dumped, you know, 100 kilometers outside of Springbok which at the time the government said, oh, it's not near any white communities, we're good. Of course it was next to black communities and communities mm -hmm. of color. Um, and so these issues are not just social forces of today and to the future, although those are important too, but also because nuclear weapons have such a slow, long kind of violent characteristic to them, it, the social relations that are impacted, which Marxism focuses on, also come from the past. Also, I mean, kind of touched on this earlier, but you think about who is making money off of these nukes. It's the elites, right? And so it's just another way that money, that social classes are further divided and workers are not getting um, like paid back for the, the value that they're actually um, outputting and contributing to also makes me think about Chernobyl in terms of, you know, the people, actually this is, I hadn't even thought about this point, <laughs> but um, the people who have been killed by accidents at nuclear plants tend to be workers, right? Because those are the people who are in the plant doing the hard labor. Um, whereas, you know, of course, communities around can be affected. They certainly were in the case of Chernobyl, but the small amount of people that did die were people in a very specific class situation that needed that um, job in order to make money. Totally. So that's sort of like a Marxist take on, on nuclear issues. So green theory also has a ton of contributions to nuclear issues. Just 
you know, at its base around what does nuclear technology, nuclear proliferation, nuclear weapons, how do those things impact the environment? They impact it a lot. (laughs) One of the largest issues that has to do, that green theory addresses really well, is the issue of nuclear waste. Um, And in any case, nuclear waste is generated from nuclear power plants, which are used to make weapons, or nuclear power plants that are used to make technology and energy. (laughs) In the U.S., it's there's a lot of issues with storage. Of course, there isn't any country, but um, in the U.S., it's an issue. Totally. And this is also, just to clarify, whether or not nuclear weapons are used, nuclear waste is still constantly generated from like maintaining weapons, um, like Gabby said, with technology and whatnot. Um, but yeah, back to storage. It's, as you can imagine, storing nuclear waste is a very particular um intense process sometimes they're stored in you know i don't really know what this is but dry concrete casks um or sometimes they're stored in places like yucca mountain gabby do you want to talk about the like craziness that is yucca mountain a hundred percent um so yucca mountain was used for a pretty long time to store nuclear waste so many issues where to start the it's first... literally mind-blowing that this place even existed, but sorry. No, it's okay. Uh, some of the first issues is it seismically and volcanically active as a region. Seems like it should be a prerequisite to not store nuclear waste there. Nuclear waste on top of a volcano. Are you kidding me? What? <laughs> I'm... Ugh. Yeah. So there was that issue. It was just not a good location um, in terms of what they wanted to do, which was deep nuclear storage within the mountain. Another really huge problem is that it was the aquifer that is next to kind of around the mountain drains to one of Nevada's most productive agricultural regions, right next to an Air Force base, also next to Las Vegas. All of these, they're all bad. All of these things. So nuclear waste just has the potential to impact so many people just from this one, this one facility. Yeah. Of course, the mountain was also used to be a site of cultural significance for Native American nations. Of course it was. Another problem. It just gets worse. Yes. Luckily, small, small win. It was closed in 2011 um, under the Obama administration, but it's still, you know, even though, great, we have this one specific site where we're no longer storing waste there. Of course, there's still waste there. That's Mm -hmm. going to take thousands of years to become not not dangerous anymore but we're looking for other places right where are we supposed to store it in the meantime yucca mountain 2.0 and it's like yeah it's great that it closed um but like you alluded to this stuff takes hundreds thousands of years to decay so it will continue to impact the surrounding environment for a very 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 long time so closing it doesn't necessarily just solve the problem no and luckily we're no longer doing this but from 1946 to 1993 13 countries actually used ocean disposal and dumping to get rid of their waste um i don't it's just a can of worms i'm just (laughs) really floored by this honestly and i know i shouldn't be um because of course we just love to dump things in our oceans but radioactive waste in the ocean. That is terrifying. Beyond just ocean dumping, 
there's also a lot of illegal dumping operations. So one example of this is this Italian mafia clan that's accused of traffic, trafficking and illegally dumping nuclear waste. Um, and so according to a whistleblower, Italy's state energy research agency actually paid this clan to get rid of over 600 drums of toxic and radioactive waste from Italy, Switzerland, France, Germany, and the United States, and used Somalia as its destination, where the waste was buried after buying off local politicians. Um, and this continued through the 80s and 90s. And it's, you know, when we were doing research for this podcast, I my immediate thought, which was very pessimistic of me, was I'm sure that Western countries are dumping their waste or exporting their waste oh, to like non-Western countries. They're doing it. Of course they're doing it. To be fair, though, I found it very difficult to find that information because all of the sources that I found said, um, you know, countries are, tend to be responsible for their waste. So countries will take their waste, they'll send it to another country, which will reprocess it into a different kind of fuel, and then they'll send it back. For better storage capacity but if there are situations like the italian one we just talked about there's a whole bunch of other ones too that they just haven't found out about yet absolutely and i think about you know i guess people are cool with us dumping our recycling or you know technological waste in um especially non-white countries but you know maybe nuclear waste they think ah, too far on the bad optics too far and so maybe that's why it's a little more hidden and uh, you know i share your pessimism i am like 100 percent certain we are paying like illicit networks to take care of this for us so yes this is we've talked about the inherent dangers of nuclear technology in general and the waste that produces then getting to nuclear weapons so if a nuclear weapon was used even in the manufacturing of nuclear weapons which is still happening all the time I mean, you can understand how that would especially cause environmental catastrophe. I mean, there's, you know, Chernobyl, <laughs> Fukushima, Three Mile Island. <laughs> so many others um, where just things have gone wrong. So, yeah, there's all these bad things that obviously come from the manufacturing of, like, nuclear weapons and nuclear technology. But people argue that the the energy that can be um, like siphoned from nuclear technology is so much greater um, and cleaner than, ironically, than um, other non-renewable non-renew- energy sources such as coal or fossil fuels or whatnot um, if it's done correctly and there's, there's no disaster. Um, so you see this trade-off between nuclear technology and the environmental environmental benefits it might yield. So you're not releasing um, emissions or greenhouse gases into the atmosphere. But if you have a catastrophe, I feel like that probably you probably net all of those gains that you made from using nuclear versus other energy resources. And that's where green theory is so useful because in a lot of you know, if you think of nuclear policy discussions, it was kind of what we talked about at the beginning. We're talking about nuclear terrorism, proliferation, all of these security issues, because people assume and think about nuclear weapons as purely a weapons and international security issue, when in fact, there's so many local green issues, some of the things we've just touched on, um, that maybe should be brought more to the forefront when we're kind of trying to have a holistic picture of what nuclear technology and weapons really means. 
And greed theory actually feeds pretty well into um, some of the other theories that deal with race and colonialism and um, post-colonial legacies um, in terms of, so green theory definitely touches on how communities of color are especially impacted by um, nuclear disasters and nuclear waste and whatnot, which decolonial, um, post-colonial, decolonial, post-colonial and critical race theories also help illuminate. And it is perfect that you brought up race because thinking about these things through a critical race theory kind of also brings a lot of interesting things to the forefront. Um, so, you know, who's most likely to be hurt in nuclear war? People of color. Um, weapons production, the testing and the waste also often comes at the expense of indigenous communities. Just think about the Pacific and Marshall Islands, for example. Mm-hmm. Totally. And I think about, um, you know, a lot of nuclear testing and whatnot has been done in New Mexico, well, those are, you know, traditionally lands Mm -hmm. of uh, Native groups, and that was stolen to make nuclear weapons. Mm -hmm. So something that's also not talked about as much is the connection between nukes and white supremacy. And I think some people might push back against this at first because, you know, 93% of nuclear weapons are held by the United States and Russia, which, you know, while there's a lot of um, mixed ethnicities in both states, they're they're mostly white countries. Um, So how can you say that this is an issue of white supremacy? Elaine Scarry actually does a really nice job of illuminating how the United States nuclear regime, especially, has some really racist origins. And she cites three lists. Um, The first list is the list of geographies where U.S. presidents have thought about launching nuclear weapons, which are predominantly um, countries with populations of people of color. Um, So Vietnam was one. Um, They did it in Japan. Where else? They did it in Japan, North Korea, Iran, you get the picture. Um, the second list is the list of geographies where the United States has actually tested its bombs, which, which obviously Japan, a lot of Pacific islands. Um, and then the third list is a list of countries where the United States has sort of prevented states from acquiring nuclear weapons. Um, so think Libya, Iran, North Korea, um, but they never would have done this with majority white countries and they never would have, um, you know, contemplated bombing majority white countries. And I, you know, that's speculative, of course, but I think we can all recognize that it's really not that speculative. No, absolutely. I think that makes a huge amount of sense. And it also just kind of feeds into this idea of talking about colonial legacies, which countries were former colonial powers, white countries, you know, which countries, you know, have all of these been, which countries have been colonized, which countries does the U.S. maybe create this hierarchy in its mind to say, well, we're white and, you know, a colonial power, so we're allowed to have nuclear weapons, but you are not because you are quote unquote undeveloped and couldn't handle having such a weapon. Mm -hmm. And racism even plays, I, I mean, okay. 
and you know some people also might push back well there are all kinds of non-white countries that have nuclear weapons so china pakistan india and you know you're right but also think about the aspect of having to perform whiteness our international system is built on structures of white supremacy and colonialism and so in order to play the game to be a player in international politics you have to conform to these structures and especially in order to protect yourself from further foreign domination and so why is china why did china pursue nuclear weapons india pakistan it makes total sense you have these majority white countries that have you know historically been meddling in your business and they think the only way to protect themselves against further foreign domination is by acquiring nuclear weapons and i think you see that logic also with north korea um, with iran and so it's it becomes this performativity of whiteness in order to you know stop whiteness from entering your country again no and i think it's it's interesting because when you think about the countries that perform whiteness um that have nuclear weapons like you just said india pakistan china israel um they all perform whiteness and therefore on some level are accepted as having nuclear weapons and the mm -hmm. countries that do not or say i resist performing whiteness in order to be in this system are north korea and iran and because of that we call them rogue states we call them you know um, bad actors bad actors <laughs> state sponsors of terrorism mm -hmm. which you know it's that's not it, wrong it's, but, yeah. it's not wrong <laughs> but also think about who you know state sponsors of terrorism is a whole other can of worms but the united states does it too and they're just not called out for it freedom fighters freedom fighters okay. yeah and like from a broader decolonial perspective it also brings the idea of hierarchies to the table so what what hierarchies are created when you have nuclear states versus non-nuclear states? You know, how many of those nuclear states are in the UN Security Council? How many of those states have more power in their regions and are able to work together versus states who maybe don't have those weapons and don't want the weapons? There's also, I mean, nuclear technology and nuclear weapons development requires, you know, a very specific set of skills and materials, um, such as uranium mining. Um, that has significant colonial consequences in terms of um, polluting indigenous land to mine these materials. A lot of uranium mining is done in underdeveloped countries or um, developing countries. And so, you know, you envision these American or like American supported companies going in and extracting resources from local populations just to build weapons to further terrorize those populations. Yes, and there's this wonderful author, Catherine Youssef, um, who wrote this book called A Billion Black Anthropocenes or None. And she has this great line where she talks about the nuclear colonialism of waste, where economic poverty is used as an exploitative means to re-territorialize land with the byproducts of nuclear testing. So essentially, you know, countries, colonial powers go in, they territorialize the land, they say, get out of here, we don't want you. Um, they colonize the people and then make them, or they cause them to go towards economic poverty. And then they use that poverty in order to say, now we're going to mine uranium, making this place unsafe, you know, colonizing, colonializing land and people. 
leaving that nuclear waste there in many cases from the uranium mining. So it's just this really exploitive process that continues to reproduce these inequalities that we see. Mm -hmm. That also connects back to Marxist theory, the, ter the, you know, the consequences of land and labor exploitation. Yes. So that's just sort of an introduction to how different critical theories think about nuclear weapons, nuclear technology, and whatnot. There's some more critical theories that we'll touch on in later episodes, like is, feminism and queer theory. And this is just the tip of the iceberg. Like, we just went Definitely. over some broad themes. We will, you know, in the show notes, have some example articles that you can look at, some sources that maybe will give you more breadth on this. And we're happy to, you know, cover things more in detail if it's what you want. If it's what you want. <laughs> or if you want to come on our podcast and talk about it. <laughs> just slide into those dms we're open yeah <laughs> all right um thank you all so much for listening um there's so much more to cover on this issue and we can't wait to interview some other scholars and activists um that work around nuclear issues yeah uh so we will see you next episode see you